please turn with me, if you will, to the second chapter of Daniel as we continue our study dashing through Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 contains the first of several very vivid dreams which are recorded for us in the book of Daniel. This one, a particularly uh, ominous dream to Nebuchadnezzar who dreamed it. I recently had one of these ominous dreams uh, myself, dreamed uh, that I uh, went to uh, visit uh, heaven and the residence there. And as I met Peter at the gate, I walked in and started recognizing people that I knew. There was David Melhoff. And the striking thing was that David was uh, chained to this uh, horrible, uh, ugly, misshapen creature. And I asked Peter what exactly uh, was going on here. And Peter said, well, he is uh, doing penance for sins that he committed while on earth. So I went on a little further, and there was uh, Chris Riddell. And Chris, likewise, was chained to this horrible, ugly, uh, misshapen creature. And I asked Peter what was going on, and he said the same thing. Well, he's doing penance for sins which he committed while on earth. And I came uh, along a little further, and lo and behold, there I was in my dream. And I was chained to Bo Derek. <laughs> and I asked uh, Peter for an explanation. I don't understand. These guys were chained to these horrible, ugly, misshapen creatures, and I am chained to Bo Derek, and he scratched his head and said, well, actually, she's the one who was doing penance. <laughs> so, uh, so. A frightening dream, but not, uh, not as frightening as the one that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel 2. Now, as we saw in our first study two weeks ago, Daniel was truly a remarkable individual, uh, a youth in his mid-teens who demonstrated a wisdom and a maturity far beyond his years. And even at that young age provides an example for us of how to live in a society which is hostile to the nourishment of genuine faith in the God of heaven. Another thing I really like about Daniel is that he is what we would call today a layman. He was not a priest. He was a statesman. He was a diplomat by profession. Never been to seminary a day in his life. And yet as we read through the book of Daniel, we see the remarkable things that God was able to do through this ordinary young man who was totally and utterly dependent upon the God who dwelt in him. And he provides then a remarkable model for those of you who are lay people, ordinary, garden, variety type believers who are living by faith in God, the sort of opportunity and ministry that's available to you as you live by faith in the same God that Daniel trusted. You have an opportunity as lay people, a unique opportunity to minister to people that pastors can never get close to. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with one of our elders who mentioned that just a week before, he'd had the remarkable privilege of sitting in a business discussion, a roundtable business discussion, uh, over lunch with eight senior vice presidents in our community. There's a remarkable opportunity to be salt and light in a setting that a member of the clergy could uh, never get anywhere near. So you have remarkable opportunities, unique ministries to touch people that others cannot minister to. And if we understand the basis by which Daniel approached life and his relationships, we too will begin to see some of the same results, the same impact on society and people around us that we observe in Daniel's case. 
Now, chapter 2 is a long chapter, so we'll have to move through this fairly rapidly. It divides naturally into three sections. Verses 1 through 13 describe this crisis in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, as well as in Daniel's life due to this dream which he could not explain. Then in verses 14 through 30, we see Daniel's response to this crisis, and we learn some significant things for ourselves about how we can respond to situations of crisis and pressure in life. And then in verses 31 through the end of the chapter, we see the dream unfolded and explained. Well, let's set the stage in verses 1 through 13. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, which would be around 604 B.C., remember Daniel and his friends had been taken into captivity in 605 B.C., just a year or so before. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Became very agitated in spirit as a result of this dream, became an insomniac as a result, and called to his side the only men he knew of who could help him with this problem. Verse 2, the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. Little Martin Luther King thrown in there. I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. These men he called into the palace were the experts in the black arts, occult practices, were the astrologers of their day, the men who developed horoscopes for the ancient people. They collected dream manuals, a record of historical dreams and the events that followed them, and they would use these dream manuals to interpret dreams of a similar nature. And these dream manuals had become fairly extensive by this time, and it took an expert to find his way through this catalog of dreams. And these are the men that Nebuchadnezzar calls to help him. Verse 4, the Chaldeans, who were the leaders of these occult practitioners, the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, and from 2.4 through the end of chapter 7, Daniel is written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew, which is a related but different language, the language of international diplomacy at this time. And Daniel wanted to be sure that everyone everywhere could read this section because of its implications for international affairs. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Reasonable enough. The king answered, however, and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, dismembered, literally you will be made into limbs, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap, a garbage dump. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward that is great wealth and great honor, position of stature and status in the kingdom. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Realize that Nebuchadnezzar is changing the rules here. It's customary for him to divulge the dream and then for the interpreters to tell him what it meant. But I believe Nebuchadnezzar strongly suspected these guys of making up plausible interpretations for these dreams and wanted some way to be able to verify the authenticity of this interpretation. 
because his dream was so troubling to him. So the ground rule he laid down is you not only must tell me what the dream means, you must tell me the dream itself. And the command, he says, is firm. If you don't, you will be made into limbs. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain, verse 8, that you are bargaining for time, just stalling for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. That is the decree that you will be made into limbs. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. In other words, they were stalling for time, hoping that, hoping that Nebuchadnezzar was, would change his mind or that he would forget about this dream, move on to other things. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. And there we see the reason Nebuchadnezzar is playing hard cheese. He wants to know that they can tell him what this dream means and therefore insist that they tell him not only the interpretation but the dream itself. Chaldeans respond in verse 10 by saying it's not fair, be reasonable. Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now, as we will go on to see, they were right about one thing they said in verse 11, but wrong with respect to another. They were right when they said that no one could declare this to Nebuchadnezzar except the gods. But their gods did not dwell with mortal flesh. But as we will see in Daniel's case, there was a god, the god of heaven, who did in fact dwell with mortal flesh and therefore could reveal through this man the meaning of the dream. Because of this, verse 12, because they admitted their own poverty and their inability to help him, because of this the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now this sounds a rash and uh, unduly harsh and I think the reason that Nebuchadnezzar got fed up with these guys and blew his stack and gave what appears to be a very rash order off with their heads, all of them, every last one of them, is that he uh, had found these guys to be very unreliable in the past. He'd gone to the well repeatedly and come away empty and was at last fed up with these men who were his only source of help but proved to be totally bankrupt when he truly needed them. So the decree, verse 13, went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them, since they were numbered among the wise men. Now, as we'll see in just a moment, Daniel was a man, an ordinary man, with whom God was dwelling. And that gave him the capacity to respond in this crisis in a way that opened up an opportunity for God to do some great things through him. But it's intriguing to me that Nebuchadnezzar realized in this situation, this very troublesome dream, that he needed help that was beyond ordinary human help. He realized the need to tap into supernatural resources. And so he turned to these occult practitioners, these astrologers, for help. And people in our day are still doing the same thing. It's easy for us to think of these Babylonians as victims of sort of ancient superstition. 
But people in our day, people in our own city are turning to astrologers and palm readers and handwriting experts for help in the same way. There's a society in our uh, city called the Metaphysics Society. Meta is from the Greek word meaning beyond. Physics is from the Greek word meaning nature. These are people who are interested in the realm beyond nature because they're aware that the only way that human life can make sense and be mastered and be controlled is if we can tap into resources which are beyond nature. And what they offer to people are astrological charts uh, and the ability to go back and to experience their past lives, go back and regress into past lives and learn from these past lives lessons for the future and develop from their astrological charts uh, predictions for their future and how to master the relationships that they're in. And so just as Nebuchadnezzar did, they realized that they need uh, superhuman, supernatural help. And in their desperation and their bankruptcy are willing to turn to these people who are saying some truly bizarre things but who claim to offer them help, which is supernatural in nature. Now, as we go on through verses 14 through 30, the way I'd like to look at this is we look at the way Daniel responds to this crisis. I think there's a couple of very helpful ways to look at this. For one, we see in Daniel the marks of a man or a woman in whom God dwells. God was dwelling with this ordinary uh, example of mortal flesh. And we see in him a response pattern that all of us can imitate. And we see in that very same Example: the way in which we can respond to a crisis in life. Uh, I don't know what's going on in all of your lives. There may be some of you who uh, today are really up against it in some way, either financially or in your uh, career at this point, in some kind of relationship, a marriage relationship, relationship with your children, and there's a crisis in life. You're up against it. Well, we see in Daniel's pattern a way to respond to these times of desperation in times of crisis. We see the first two marks of this man of God in verses 14 through 16. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now two things strike me about Daniel in this little paragraph, and both of them are marks of a man or a woman in whom God has taken up residence and marks of the way in which we can respond to circumstances of unusual pressure. Daniel, you realize, was facing the loss of his life uh, Arioch knocked on his door not to invite him to lunch but to take off his head. And Daniel responded, as you will observe, with discretion and discernment. In other words, the first privilege that's available to us as people in whom God dwells is that we can respond to pressure with poise and not panic. Uh, Daniel didn't become distraught. He uh, didn't uh, wring his hands, become panic-stricken and cast anxiously about for some solution. But he was able to respond with poise. He was able to keep his head while others about him were literally losing theirs. 
Now, the second thing that strikes me about Daniel's response here is that he went into the appointment secretary of the king, evidently, and set up an appointment with King Nebuchadnezzar, at which time he promised to deliver to the king the dream and its interpretation. Now, the striking thing about that is that when Daniel set up that appointment, he did not know the dream, and he did not know its interpretation. So the second thing that we see about Daniel is in a circumstance of crisis, he was able and willing to operate by faith, to step out in faith, a bold, courageous kind of faith that was willing to trust God to see him through this crisis and give him the resources he needed when he needed it. Now, he didn't see visibly those resources laid out before him, but he was willing to take a step of faith in the God of heaven trusting that God would uh, respond and deliver the resources that Daniel needed when he needed them. Now, this is often the way that God asks us to live. This is the characteristic pattern of the Christian life, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. We live by faith, not by sight. God is continually nudging us off the cliff of, cliff of safety and asking him, asking us to trust him for what we need. If we're in a difficult marriage, God asks us to trust God for all of our needs and then out of that sense of his fulfillment and completeness of us to begin stepping out in faith to minister to the needs of our partner as unresponsive and uninterested as they may be. And this is the pattern of the Christian life, to trust God to supply from his hidden reserve the things that we need to see us through the circumstances of pressure. We have some close friends that are preparing to adopt their third child just uh, six months after they'd adopted their second child. Most of the people around them are telling them they're crazy to even think about doing this. And it will be a challenging adoption because it's an older child and those present some unique uh, challenges for adoptive parents. But they're willing to step out in faith, not truly seeing yet where the financial resources will come from or the emotional reserves will come from to carry this out. But they're willing to step out in faith and trust that God will supply. Now, Daniel's step of faith in this case, you realize, was not rash or presumptuous. If you look back into chapter 1 and verse 17, you'll see that Daniel was gifted by God to understand dreams. So Daniel had seen God work in his life in this way in the past, and was now willing to trust God for a new and unique situation, but asking God to work in his life in a way in which he'd done in the past. Occasionally, Christians will take what they claim to be a step of faith, bold and courageous, but in reality, it's rash and presumptuous because they have no evidence that God has gifted them to do what they are setting out to do and no indication that he plans to suddenly begin gifting them at this point. But this is why Daniel was the one that stepped forward and not Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He was the one that had received from God the gift to do this and was willing to trust God to use this gift once again in this new and challenging situation. Now, the third thing we see in verses 17 and 18, the third mark of a man in whom God dwells, then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery 
so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So Daniel goes back to the dorm and says, Well, boys, guess what I did today? And I expect what Daniel felt was what we often feel when we have taken some step of faith. We've gone out on a limb and we're trusting God for something new and greater and different than we've trusted Him for before. After we've made that commitment, taken that step of faith, what we'll often think to ourselves, maybe the very same day, is what in the world have I done? What in the world have I gotten myself into? Well, what do you do when you have that reaction? Well, you do what Daniel did. You pray like crazy. And not only do you pray yourself, but you gather friends around you to pray with you. People in your growth group or in your dad's group or your women's Bible study or close friends. You get people praying with you that God will see you through and honor your step of faith. Now, notice that Daniel and his friends requested compassion from the God of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means clearly that they realized that God was not obligated to work in this situation in precisely the way that they wanted him to. Now, often what we'll do as believers when faced with some particularly challenging situation, in our minds we will work out a perfectly reasonable solution. And we will present this to God and say, Now, God, if you will only see it my way, be reasonable and understand the wisdom of the plan that I've worked out here, everything will be fine. But Daniel and his friends realized that God was under no obligation to respond to their faith in precisely the way that they wanted him to do so. But they realized he was compassionate. And so on that basis, they went to him and requested that he would see them through, give them the compassion and mercy that they needed to make it through this situation of crisis. Now, one little aside, it appears in the end of verse 18 that Daniel is only thinking about himself and his friends so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. But it's clear on the basis of verse 24, when God does reveal to him the dream, Daniel is very quick to tell Arioch to spare the rest of the wise men as well. So Daniel's concern here was not just for himself, but for all of the wise men of Babylon. Even these pagan, godless, heathen astrologers, Daniel wanted their lives spared as much as his own. And by the way, this suggests that it's okay to pray for God to get us out of a tight spot. He realized that Daniel was up against it here, and his prayer was in order that they might not lose their lives. It's okay. In this case, God honored that prayer. Then we see the results of this in verses 19 through 24, and this reveals the fourth uh, characteristic of a man in whom God dwells is that if we respond in faith as Daniel did, that what we will gain from this experience is a growth in God's wisdom and power. Then the mystery was revealed in verse 19 to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, a fitting title since uh, cosmic bodies were worshipped as gods, and Daniel realized he was addressing the God of heaven, the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. 
That is, the point is you don't have to be wise to be given wisdom, but it's when God gives wisdom that, it, that you become a wise man. It is He in verse 22 who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Daniel's prayer of praise is in response to what he'd learned about God in his dream. And there were two things about God that impressed him in God's revelation to him in this night vision of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The first was God's wisdom, that God was the one who could see in the darkness and reveal to Daniel something that no man could know apart from God's willingness to reveal it to him. And secondly was God's power. As we will see in just a moment, God's power was revealed in that Daniel realized that God was the one who was in charge of human history, that the changing times and epochs in all of human history are under God's control. So he's the one that's responsible for ushering in every new era and epoch in human history, from the Dark Ages to the Renaissance to the Reformation to the Industrial Revolution to the explosion in technology in our day, God is the one who is behind that. He is the one who was sending the third wave. And this, by the way, as believers, what can keep us from being resistant to change. Conservative Christians often have the reputation of being those who fight change and progress at every turn and have to be dragged into the future. And the church often operates 20 years behind the rest of its culture. But if we understand that God is the one who is responsible for changing the times and epochs and we're free to be on the vanguard of change, not to uncritically accept everything, of course, but to take advantage of progress in technology, for instance, and use it as soon as it's available in the interests of the kingdom. And Daniel also realized that in the succession of world powers that he saw revealed in the dream, that God was the one who deposed Nebuchadnezzar and replaced him with Osiris and replaced the Persian kings with an Alexander the Great, and replaced the Greeks with the Roman emperors. That even though it appeared that these things were subject to the normal ebb and flow of, of human activity, Daniel realized that God was the one who was behind the scenes and removing one king and setting up another in his place. That God is responsible for all of human history. He's the one that oversees it and determines the change in world governments. This can be a great comfort to us, by the way, as we look ahead to the 1988 election. We should, of course, be responsible citizens and so forth, but we must realize that the decision about who is going to be our president in 1988 belongs to God. He's the one who removes presidents and establishes presidents. This is his doing. We need not fear. And then, of course, the second thing that Daniel learned about God was his wisdom that God was able to reveal to him things that no man could know apart from God's willingness to reveal it to him. I love the way he puts it in verse 22. God is the one who reveals the profound and hidden things. The deep secrets of life are things that men can only know 
if God chooses to reveal them to us. And he's done so in the Scripture. And the truth of Scripture is profound. It's hidden from men. It's truth about life and insight into life that cannot be known on any other basis than God revealing it to us. There's truth in the Scriptures, a profound and hidden truth that you cannot find in any college classroom, that you cannot find in any textbook on psychology, but contain the secrets to life. If you're a fan of Doonesbury as I am, perhaps you've been following uh, his lampooning of the uh, state of California. California legislature has appropriated $750,000 to finance a self-esteem task force. These are a group of experts who are going to determine how it is that people can develop self-esteem. Well, that's a very basic and important and foundational question to all of life. Unless we have some basis for self-worth and self-esteem and self-confidence, we're incapacitated as people. We need to know how we can be people of self-esteem. Well, the answer to that is found in the Scriptures. I can say the state of California, three-quarters of a million dollars today. The profound and hidden things about where worth and confidence and adequacy come from are contained in God's revelation. And that's what Daniel understood about God. He reveals the deep and profound and hidden things of life. And then Daniel immediately goes to Arioch and is ushered into the presence of the king in verses 25 to 30. So we see not only as a third characteristic that the man of God grows in wisdom and power that God gave to Daniel as a result of his faith, but that Daniel is quick in this paragraph to give all of the credit for the good things that have happened to God. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found, notice how quick Arioch is to take credit for this, even though he had nothing to do with it. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. He refers to him as a man among the exiles from Judah, as if Nebuchadnezzar did not know him. And in point of fact, that was the case. You realize from chapter 2, verse 1, that this episode took place in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel was taken into captivity in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So when this episode took place, Daniel was still in the middle of that three-year training period and had not yet completed his training period and been brought before the king for his final interview. So this evidently was one of the episodes that God used to bring Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar's attention and elevate him, as we'll see at the end of the chapter. Daniel answered, or the king answered, verse 26, and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Amazement mixed with hope in his reply. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, notice to King Nebuchadnezzar, not to me, what will take place in the latter days or literally in the end of the days. That is, the Nebuchadnezzar's dream covered all of human history. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. 
But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Notice that when God did work in response to Daniel's faith, that Daniel is quick to give God all of the credit for the good things that took place. Very important lesson for us to learn as believers that every good thing that happens in us, every good thing that happens to us, every good thing that happens through us is God's doing. It's not because there's any special wisdom residing in us more than in any other men. Occasionally I will meet people in our community who when they discover that I'm on the staff at Cole will compliment me on the good things they hear going on in our body and through our body. Now there's a temptation at that point to become puffed up and to think, yeah, we're hot rocks over here. We're pretty slick. But we must remember at that time that any good thing that has happened through, through our ministry here is God's doing. Not because we're more perceptive or more intelligent or... Uh, more responsive than other people, but simply because God has been gracious and compassionate to us. And this is what frees us, is it freed Daniel from any sort of smugness or arrogance or pride or self-righteousness, which is such a turnoff to unbelievers when they see that. And that's the fifth thing we see about Daniel. He was able to respond to this crisis with poise because God was dwelling in him. He responded to it with faith, trusting in God's unhidden, unseen resources to see him through. He third, prayed like crazy with his friends that God would sustain him. Fourth, he grew in God's wisdom and power as a result, became a wiser and stronger man as a result. And fifth, gave all of the credit for that to God. Now in verses 31 to 44, we see the dream and its interpretation. Let's quickly move through this. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Notice how up-to-date the language of the Bible is here. (laughs) The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became, notice that word became implying a process, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw then to recapitulate was of this enormous statue of surpassing splendor, a head made of fine gold, the arms and breast of silver, an inferior metal to gold, but stronger, the belly and the thighs of bronze, again, inferior yet to silver and yet stronger, and lastly, the legs were made of iron 
and the feet of a mixture of iron and brittle glazed china, or perhaps common clay. And then, as Nebuchadnezzar observed in this dream, a stone was quarried from a nearby mountain without hands, with no human agency visible, and evidently rolled down the side of this mountain and landed at the very feet of clay and iron of this enormous statue and crumpled the whole thing into dust. And the wind carried off the particles of the statue like wind carries off the chaff, the husks from the summer threshing floors. And you can understand the ominous nature of this dream as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned because of the total destruction of this enormous statue. This was the dream in verse 36. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to like this dream. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Notice again God's sovereignty. God has given you the kingdom. He has given them into your hand. He has caused you to rule. And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. We know from ancient history that this is the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. They would overthrow the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And then another kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. We know this was the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great that ruled the whole world. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Referring here, it seems quite clearly, to the iron-fisted domination of the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom. Now, what he goes on in verse 41 to 43 to say is that the feet of iron and clay represent that although this kingdom was a strong kingdom, it was a vulnerable kingdom. It was weak. It was brittle. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. I think what Daniel, what was revealed to Daniel in this dream is that the weakness of the Roman Empire was that it was a mix of iron, that is, of Romans, and of common clay, that is, everybody else in the world whom the Romans had conquered. And the unity of the Roman Empire was an imposed unity. They never developed among their subjects any loyalty to Rome or any voluntary allegiance to the Roman kingdom. It was always an enforced unity. And this became its very weakness because there was no inner unity and harmony. The kingdom was quick to fall when it was threatened by the Goths in the 4th and 5th century. Now then in verse 44, he interprets the stone... In the days of those kings, that is the days of the Roman Empire, 
The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Now, it seems to me, in the interest of time, I'll simply tell you how I understand this, that Daniel understood by this stone which came from the mountain that this was a reference to the kingdom of God that Jesus would establish in the days of the Roman emperors. In his first advent, in his incarnation, Jesus would establish a kingdom which would endure forever. The kingdom of God in its present form, the church is the kingdom which Jesus established at this time. It's a kingdom, he says in verse 44, which will not be left or abandoned to another people. Each of the kingdoms before it had passed from one people to another, from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. But here was a kingdom which would endure forever and would always belong to the same people, to the citizens of a heavenly kingdom, to the children of God, to the spiritual sons of Abraham. This kingdom would be their permanent and abiding possession. And lastly, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. That's difficult to understand. I'll tell you what I think he means by this. It's clear that we're talking here, when we're talking about God's kingdom that was established by Jesus, we're talking about a different kind of kingdom. Not a political kingdom like the kingdoms that had come before it, but a spiritual kingdom. And this is what Jesus himself said to Pilate. My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. And it will crush all of these kingdoms, not in a political sense, although it will someday when Jesus returns a second time, but it will bring these kingdoms to an end in that this new kingdom, this kingdom of God with Jesus as its king, will reveal to the world the bankruptcy of human resources, of self-sufficiency, of self-dependence, the principle on which all of these kingdoms were founded, that man is capable and adequate in himself. This new kingdom would crush that thinking and liberate people from the dominance of that worldview. And then, of course, one day, literally, the king will come back and will physically and literally put an end to all these kingdoms. And he points out that this stone was a stone without hands, I think referring to the fact that the kingdom which God established in the days of Christ was a kingdom which was introduced by God alone, without any human cooperation, without any human assistance, purely by the activity and intervention of God in human affairs. And this stone, he says, would become a mountain. It would grow through a process of time into a mountain which would fill the entire earth. And I think what's referred to in that phrase is the expansion of the kingdom of God, the church, to every corner of the globe. And that's what we see before us today, a worldwide kingdom where people from every tribe and every nation across the face of the globe owe their ultimate allegiance to Jesus as their king. This is the one universal kingdom that exists today, the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king. And there are more people today who owe their allegiance to Jesus as their king and their emperor than owe their allegiance to any other human king. This is truly a universal and worldwide kingdom. And this process of growth is continuing in our day. Now, I'll allow you to read verses 46 through 49 on your own. But Nebuchadnezzar was so grateful to Daniel for the interpretation, partly because he realized that uh, he came out looking pretty good in the dream. And he promoted Daniel eventually to cabinet status along with his three friends, and they became 
uh, second in command, really, in the entire kingdom. And the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned out of this whole episode in verse 47, although he quickly forgot it, is that what he says to Daniel in verse 47, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Now, like I mentioned, I don't know what you're facing in your life at this point, what sort of crisis you may be having to face, what you're up against. But I would encourage you to remember Daniel's example, to keep your head about you, trusting God, to respond with poise. Don't panic. God is in control. Respond, secondly, with faith. Trust in His invisible resources to see you through. Get other people praying with you to request compassion from the God of heaven. And the result will be that you will grow in God's wisdom. You will understand more of life through this experience as God sees you through. And you will understand and experience more of his power and his strength for the demands of everyday life. And lastly, you will see God begin to give you an increasing influence in the kingdom as Daniel was given greater responsibility. God will give you greater opportunity to influence others for him. And let's remember also that God is uh, sovereign. He controls not only the times and epochs of nations, but he controls the times and epochs and circumstances in your life. Whatever circumstance you're in, God has brought that to pass for a purpose, which he will reveal in his time. So hang in there, quietly depend on him, and trust him to be the one to see you through. And you will see that he indeed is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. Let's pray. Father, we do now want to offer hymns and songs of praise to you as the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries. Sustain us with hope from this passage, and as we offer these hymns of praise to you, please accept them as our sacrifice of praise from willing and loving and adoring hearts. Amen.